now pause 10 seconds for station identification. Modern. Let me repeat Fun. that. Standard. Temporary music. And personality. Personality programming. Personality and conversation. FM. Definitely not top 40. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and I'm so pleased to have Lisa Russ Spar here in the studio with me. Lisa, thanks so much for coming down to the station to talk. It's such a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you also mm-hmm. for choosing the songs for today's program. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what we just heard? Because it was so lovely. It was almost hard to start. I know. <laughs> You know, you were just saying that sometimes when people come into the to the studio, they they bang the table or they you know scream or cry, and I was that made I was just about to weep. The only thing that's keeping me from doing so is that I've been listening to um, Beethoven and uh, you know music. In the, I'm a seasonal kind of listener to music, and so um, every year about the same time, I'll sort of get the same little my same CDs out and start listening to them. I still haven't figured out how to get them onto an iPod. But um, and so I don't know if music, you know, can be um, seasonal, but it is for me. And so because you were saying because now it's autumn, it's autumn. And so autumnal music, beautiful, you know, mournful music, maybe melancholy is the season. And you know, that fits in somehow. And so we'll hear what's what is like what more is on your autumn soundtrack as the Yes. Right? I think so. And okay. and, it, and Tex has chosen some some pieces I think from the group. Pretty eclectic mix. Okay. Think, well yeah. you'll DJ as we go along. I hope so. <laughs> we're gonna do double duty. We're gonna we're gonna have a talk <clears throat> show and some DJing happen. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a DJ. So uh, <laughs> we were talking about radio a little bit on yeah. the, the walkover. Um yeah, just, at the University of Virginia you have a we do. Like, we have W T J U, you know, we're Thomas Jefferson's University, University of Virginia. And uh the station's been around for a long time since the 60s and I listen to it every day and uh, you know it's a range of things like this show though not, nothing quite like this and um, and, and uh, just you can hear everything from really alternative music to old punk music to country music you know it's just it's really special and I I do love radio I love the sound of it I like I think um, we were talking about this earlier, but I think the part of me that liked being read to when I was a child um, is one of the, when I turn on the radio and somebody reads to me or talks to me or whatever, I, it's a great experience. It's so. sort of soothing. Then. It is in a way, yeah. Except if you're listening to NPR, sometimes the, sometimes the, yeah, right. a little... Then you start you banging know, the table right. over the dashboard. And, and you need to, right? Yeah, and absolutely. Need to, um, you know, before we go any further, I'll read um, the short bio here and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, and... 
also mention that you are in town. You're visiting. You're part of the Zell Visiting Writer series, and you'll be doing a poetry reading. You'll be reading poems yes. tomorrow and mm-hmm. talking about them. And, yep. um, at the Uma's Helmet Stern Auditorium, um, and so that's tomorrow, October twenty third, um, at five ten p.m. So everyone can mark it in the date book now. Um, Lisa Raspar will be reading at Uma. Okay. Lisa Raspar is the author of four books of poetry, Vanitas Ruff, Satin Cash, Blue Venus, and Glass Town, for which she received a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award in 2000. Her poems have appeared in Best American Poetry 2008, Image, The Kenyan Review, The Paris Review, Plowshares, Poetry, and Slate, among others, journals and anthologies. She's received awards from the Academy of American Poets and the 2011 Carol Weinstein Poetry Prize and was the recipient of a fellowship from the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation in 2009. Spar is a professor of English at the University of Virginia, where she is also the director of the area program in poetry writing. She also serves as the poetry editor for the arts and academe feature of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, and we've got actually a book that grew out of that project of yours, Lisa. Yes. The, the Hide and Seek Muse, uh, Annotations of Contemporary Poetry on the table with us today, too, um, besides your four books of poems. And also we have one of your, we're lucky to have one of your anthologies, All That Mighty Heart, London Poems mm-hmm. from the University of Virginia Press. Um, thanks so much to um, Jason and Emily for sending this book. And also X High... Volume One, The Land of Wandering, which you were surprised to see on the table, also from the University of Virginia Press. Yeah, I think they distribute that book. And um, it, that that book grew out of a, a collaborative venture, a sort of adventure, I should say, between a group of printmakers and poets. It's a beautiful so, book. It is a lovely book. And, and X High is sort of a, a short, short for exquisite history. And it's this is the first of a, of a trilogy. Um, and the, this, this book explores... Um, Genesis, the idea of Genesis, the land of wandering. So, and is it also then? Is it um, is it a, in a produced space as well in a gallery, um, or is the life of the project within the the, bind, the binding here? Um, I think it's within the binding. Yeah, I think there was a sort of a version of the show um, at Calvin College actually, where one of my former students is an art professor, and um, anyway. But um, but mostly it exists. It's curated. Its gallery is the book. Is so, the book yeah, yeah. wonderful? Yeah, because the artifact of the book absolutely is so important, <laughs> and how you come a, come to it, and the experience you can have in it and, and with it. Um, one of the things, the reasons I got connected with these printmakers is that I was fortunate enough to um, team teach a course in printmaking and poetry writing with a colleague, Dean Das, who's a printmaker at the University of Virginia. And we took eight advanced poets and eight advanced printmakers, and, and the printmakers had not written poems and the poets had not made prints, and we kind of threw them in the water together. And um, for us, for the poets, it was uh, an exhilarating experience. I mean, we... Um, we were there are a lot of toxic chemicals in in print shops, and so we would sort of come out of these classes, you know, highest kites on, <laughs> and 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 the learning curve was high, but um, some wonderful things happened when we when we collaborated. So and and then and these are in mm-hmm. X high. So is there when is volume two, or does it already oh, exist? It, it already exists. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. But we have before us volume one, the land of wandering, um, and and some of your poems appear in this mm-hmm. book as and, part of yeah. the guide. I was lucky. To, I felt fortunate to be part of that. Um, but one of the things I was noticing when you were listing my book titles is that they're all they all contain two words. <laughs> you know, I think it's time for me to 
break out of that, um, you know, the glass town, blue Venus, satin cash. Vanitas Rough at least has a a comma. There is a comma. I can attest (laughs) to the comma. comma. I'm not sure if I read it with the comma. I might have compressed it a bit. Um, And are you you working on, um, are there several new manuscripts in the works, Lisa? Well, I mean, I love um, working on my own poems while I'm, I'm, I'm an ardent anthologizer, so you know mm. I have the London poems, and I also the insomnia, have the ins- acquainted with the night, and I'm working on a book right now of poems about Thomas Jefferson. Um, they're curated. I've solicited 50 poems by 50 contemporary poets about Jefferson, and it's a pretty, uh, you know, he was a really complicated man, really part sort of at the heart of the. Uh, paradox of the American experiment. So the poems that have been coming in, you know, from poets from Natasha Trethewey to um, uh, Yusuf Kuminyaka to, you know, just yeah, a whole range of uh, Charles Wright and Bob Hass. And it's a whole range of wonderful poets contributing. Um, And that I'm also, my editor is talking about maybe a new and selected next, which makes me feel on the old side. But but, so that's what I because there can be many of those, right? Yeah. So yes, this is just the first. Yeah. <laughs> so you would ask me earlier, you know, what, um, how, what I was thinking about maybe reading tomorrow, mm. and a lot of times, yeah. How do you pick a set list for a reading now, Lisa? I <laughs> know, I know. It's again, that's. I think that's the would be one joy of being a DJ, which you know I've always wanted to do, as I said. But um, is if I have a new book out, I'll usually read from that book just for my editor and to sort of promote the book. But since I've been thinking about a new and selected, I've been going back to earlier work and. I'm appalled at some of it, but it's made me do. So I was thinking maybe for the reading tomorrow to read, you know, poems from early poems and then come up through the the books that way and and just kind of sample from them. And, so a chronology of which yeah. you, how you might experience mm-hmm. it in the new and selected, or would you the, thematic do, and chronology? Well, I don't. I'm not sure exactly, but I, what right. I mean is that I, I'll revisit poems from earlier books, which I don't usually do a reading so and are, are you, it sounds like you're just being overly um modest when you say some of the earlier poems su- su- surprised you in a, um, a way i don't know or, um, <laughs> or you didn't say surprise but anyway you know, you know what you said well you know i'm not gonna say it <laughs> I, yeah no i mean uh, robert hayden you know is a poet i really love who's a michigan oh, yes. yeah and he he really uh you know he left he won the hopwood award twice i think here and he he left here with some work that he'd called his apprentice pieces, his apprentice pieces, that he just never wanted to have see the light of day. And I think that there's a rush to publish sometimes now in the with the current, you know, culture for creative writing. And I think sometimes it's good to wait, you know. And, and I'm glad I waited. I mean, I'm a, I'm a late bloomer, but um, some of the stuff that can end up in a first book can sometimes be something that you later, you know, your, your style changes or, as Hayden says, they're, they're your... You're, well, you always want to be apprenticing, I think, no matter who you right. are. But, um, but sometimes I, I've considered paying like some of my students to go into our library and <laughs> take my master's thesis out and burn it. And then, oh, well, I hear you. Know, you. But anyway, <laughs> but that. But on the other hand, that's part of you know that's part of my journey as a writer. So. And I think, would it be Gary Snyder? I think he was saying always like this consideration of the the poet also being considering the public, like uh, having the work in the public. That's right. part of like why right. we, we should be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Even though I think it's the wrong thing to think about, you know, finally, I think it's, you know, or the wrong thing to, to prioritize. I mean, I think, you know, rather than thinking, sussing out what an editor will like, you've got to try to write the poems you need to write. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 
Ah, <laughs> that is that is and that why why do you think that, Lisa? Like why is that? Um, um, well, I don't know. I, I I just think that it's easy to get to get who doesn't warm to praise or um, you know, and, and I think and we want our work to reach people, obviously. But I think that if you if you make that your um, your priority, then you can get away from making the doing the experimenting and taking the risks that you need to take. I think as a writer. And when did you start taking um, risks? Risks, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I can. When could you break from? Yeah, what well, you're describing. I think um, you know, coming of age of, as a poet in the 1970s um, was, in some ways, wonderful because suddenly we had creative writing programs and classes and things to take, and it was exciting. But I think it was also a time in which. William Carlos Williams' legacy, you know, heavily enjammed, sort of relentlessly enjammed lines and moving away from form and so forth, um, kind of the poems became more content driven than they were interested in formal aspects. And I don't mean necessarily received forms, but so I just think um, for a while I was writing a poem, I think that looked like everybody else. I, Brown University had a parody of, you know, write a New Yorker poem. And you do this by including, you know, the word dark and, you know, and uh, and uh, mention, say, as as if or as like or something like that. And, uh, you know, so we all had I, – I felt – anyway, I feel that I had some learning to do after that to teach myself some things about writing, which I did from reading poets that were important to me, you know, Dickinson and Hopkins and people like that. But also I had the good fortune to work with Donald Justice, who was oh, yes. teaching um, at the University of Virginia, where I was a Master of Fine Arts student for a while. And even though I don't write, um, you know, he were, he was very formal and, and used a lot of traditional forms. But I think that his he would look at a line and he'd say, what is this line doing? You know, it's, it's not, what is it, how does it fulfill itself? Um, and I think that was really important for me. We're going to take yeah. a short okay. break and then we'll come back. Today okay. on Living Writers, Lisa Russ-Spar is here. We've got many books on the table, among them The Hide and Seek Muse, Annotations of Contemporary Poetry, out with Drunken Boat uh, Press. Thanks to Ravi Shankar for overnighting that mm-hmm. to the program. And we'll we'll be right back after a short break. You 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. Lisa Russbar is here in the studio. Um, we've got text behind the glass, engineering, <laughs> playing these songs. Marvelous. That, yeah. Yes. What about this one? Why this one? Well, uh, Why Kate Bush? I love Kate Bush and I, I have for a long time. And um, I was thinking, you know, when you just asked me, what, is, what are you listening to now? Or what are some of your, what are your favorite songs? I was thinking when I was looking at that list, you know, Joni Mitchell and, and Kate, I was thinking about who the great, these women with these great voices, or Jesse Norman, um, the real um, original vocalists, you know, and um, there's, I, I have a poem actually in, um, oh, it's down that is about uh, Joanna Newsom, you know, <laughs> who is a le- in that vein, I think, you know, she w- couldn't be doing what she was doing if Joni and Kate hadn't made the music they made. But one summer, my youngest daughter was just on a, well, she still is, but she was on a Joanna Newsom jag and um she just played her all the time and i didn't i just sounded like screaming you know coming from the from this upstairs window and it just (laughs) took me such a long time i really have learned to hear her and appreciate what an amazing musician she is and everything but um but i did write a little poem about that summer and maybe if i can find it i'll read it um but um the thing about about I, I, you know, she has a voice that does a lot of things like Kate's, you know, where she gets into those weird registers. And I remember asking a student of mine, um, do you think she really talks like that, you know, in real life, you know? And he said, yeah, actually, I saw her, I heard her on the radio, actually. And uh, somebody, the um, interviewer said, you know, what's your favorite animal? And she said, a unicorn, <laughs> uh, something like that. So she had... Still, but she's such a beautiful harp player, and her her skills, her chops are amazing. So this is um, called Black Snake, and Joanna just kind of makes a a cameo appearance in it. You can't garden in Virginia without encountering black snakes. So there, black snake. Does this longest day? Oh, I should mention that it starts. It takes place on the summer solstice. Does this longest day define me? Sleepless as I always am with solstice qualms, white extreme stagger of light refusing to depart bamboo, amethyst contusion, the yard across which I drag a garden hose. From an open upper story window, a recording of that ululating indie harpist girl, my daughter's new favorite singer, shrieks in faux child voice of hearts and velvet prisons. I want to like her music, but instead it makes me want to gnaw rocks. Apricot pendulum lyre ticking in the locust, blue field stones of the crumbling fence, old crush on the world whose beauty I've always feared to see directly. Will that leave me, too, despite years that never brought me the weightless grace I thought I would become for myself or anyone. I hope not, bending to the spigot that suddenly moves, uncoils, all my years rushing like ebony water around a pier, then bellying off into the dark, wanting nothing. <laughs> but anyway. Thank, so was, thank you for yeah, reading that. No, I, like I said, I, I've, I've really grown to like, to like Joanna, and um, my daughter went to the University of Chicago and she said that she got to hear her um, perform there and that, um, you know, the, in a, that everybody was unplugged and the, the group of young people, you know, just quiet as a 
church as she's performed, you know, under this spotlight. So anyway. So riveted. Yeah, very much so. But I do think that, you know, whatever you think of her or Bush or Joni Mitchell or whatever, these women were kind of groundbreakers. And I, I think that idea of style, you know, finding a style is something that poets think about sometimes. Well, that's connecting to what you were saying earlier, how to find mm-hmm. what is yours rather than what is maybe earning you praise. Right. Exactly initially. So. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, um, you know, we're all, we all have different toleration, a different tolerance for, um, you know, some, some of us really like a very windexed window in our poems, you know, so you, you want something that's not, that's going to kind of give away most of what it, you know, you just, you can fall through. And then there are those of us who really get caught up in the net of language, you know, and the tech, the surfaces and the texture of the is a little bit more brocaded and you want uh, your reader to get sort of caught in the net of the language a bit. And I, you know, I, I'm, that's who I am, I think, as a poet, but caught in the net of the language. Yeah. But I think, you know, when I be just to go back to our earlier um, conversation, when I started writing, I felt like I didn't pay as much attention to that. I really, it was just more about what can I confess or what can I say about, you know. And I think that later I realized that really why I wanted to write was because I I couldn't, uh, that I loved language. You know, I just, I mean, words. I read, I read, as a child, I read the dictionary and I still do, you know. Just um, What's your favorite letter? Oh, I don't know. It's really interesting that you was asked, but all of them are my favorite letter. So I, I want to say to my kids, you know, I love you all the best. Um, but I do notice that I'll, when I'm curating poems for a new book, I, I'll see that I might, as I'm gathering them together and trying to think about how I might organize them, I see that I might have used the word bijou or something in like 10 poems. And, and obviously, I've gotten stuck on bijou. <laughs> and I have to go back and 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 you know change some of them to something else and or there'll be a lot of bees on the page you know because I've gotten stuck I was looking for bijou in the dictionary but then I got you know enchanted mm. or sort of seduced by bivouac or something else that's on the page and so I, I think that my poems betray sometimes the way that I um, kind of live in the dictionary. So. And what's have you ever found like some sort of strange uh, an unexpected word that suddenly did just make itself like have a place in the poem that you were you didn't even know you were searching for but it got in there or no (laughs) or maybe many times no that's sort of how i work actually a lot of times now it's more that i'll i'll run across a word um lacrimatory or something and that was that came i found that you know just an article somewhere and i thought oh that's wonderful a vial for tears you know and then I, i looked at the online and so sometimes a poem will start with a word um and then uh this sort of briary thicket will grow up around it and i'll find that the word is well a word is like a poem you know itself it's full of rooms and etymologies and histories and um, suggestiveness and so forth. So a lot of times I'll, what I'll find is that the word will haunt me and then there'll be this sort of stereoscopy as the float of something that's also on my mind kind of rubs, it's rubs, so rubs against the word and then suddenly, oh, things are happening and then a poem starts to emerge from that. And I'm trying to, I'm, I, what I was just thinking then, Lisa, was about Black Snake mm-hmm. as well, the poem that you just read. Because I feel like listening, um, there's this moment where it's the years and we're in the mind of the, the narrator. And then suddenly the, the coils um, of years become actually like not just the 
the garden hose or time, but then this real snake. The snake, right. right. It's sort of a riddle poem in a way, and that, you know, you, the title gives away what, and then you kind of, for, you move away from the snake. And I, right. So you want it to be, a, I want it to be a surprise for the reader that, the way it surprised me that without thinking, I, I reached down, you know, there's a lot of hose there and everything, and then suddenly this and black snakes won't kill you, but they do. They will rise up, and their necks will, you know, fan oh. out like sort of cobra-like, and it's, it can be alarming. And they like to slide in and out of thing, places that you also like to need to be, like you know, as in the, as a gardener, yeah, or a gardener, or, or up in, inside the grill, you know, the outside out, outdoor, outdoor grill, or down into your chair on the porch or something like that. So, <laughs> oh yes, I grew up in Florida, and so there's oh a, yeah, definitely a, a relationship with snakes. Lots of fauna. They could really harm you there. <laughs> Oh, of course. It's yeah. not always the, yeah. the innocent ones. Yeah. Sadly. Everything poisonous finds a way to survive in Florida. And <laughs> <laughs> be on your toes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I was, I, I was, had the good fortune to teach at the Palm Beach Poetry Festival with Laura Kosiski and oh, also Tony Hoagland and stuff. That was two, two or three years ago. Oh, how wonderful. It was really great. But some of, some of the poets... Uh, were going swimming at night in the pool that was at this wonderful place where they let, let us stay. But the pool was open to, you know, it was just a pond, really. And the, we were just a few blocks from the... So it wasn't a real pool? Well, it was, pool. it was built into the ground and people were swimming in it, but okay. it was, you know, but it was black, you know, <laughs> it wasn't turquoise. And, um, and then we were like two blocks from the sound lagoon, you know, and I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm from New Jersey and I'm, I don't think I'm going to go swimming in there in Florida. You know, there could be something. Yeah. You know, I, we saw a lot I of think that was and wise. gators and things. But, but I admired the, the folks who did swim. So well, that's why I, yeah. I don't, if it had been a pond, I would have said, don't be don't ridiculous. Do <laughs> Obviously, there's a gator in there. Right, and of course. Any yeah. sort of op- like piece yeah. of water is fair game. That was what I thought. <laughs> because it's always trying to reclaim yeah. the, um, the, yes. Yeah. It was Campbell McGrath there as well. No, was he, it, uh, it was Terrence Hayes, and oh, um, yeah, it was the just they always do a great job of kind of gathering a really diverse group of poets, and so there's something for everybody who oh, comes, you know. Okay. Yeah, well, only I only asked because of his book, The Florida Poems. Oh, that's right. I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, why right. you took that title? Well, Donald Justice was from Florida. I remember he write has a poem about how Florida is like the most beautiful state oh. name. Uh, in the yeah, so there you go. <laughs> well, I'm glad I let you finish that yeah. thought. Yeah. <laughs> you said beautiful state name. name. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> again, the, yeah. Right. Well, I'm from New Jersey, so I, you know, we take our share of hits. For, oh, for, yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> the Garden State Parkway. Yeah, not always. Not, yeah. <laughs> visually. Well, uh, yeah, I was talking to Robert Pinsky once. He's also from New Jersey. A lot of poets from New Jersey, and there was an interesting article in the New York Times about why so many Jersey poets, you know. And um, Ginsburg and, you know, yeah. so forth. And we also claim Whitman. And there's a photo of him at the Walt Whitman rest area, even though he really is from New York. But some of the authors... <laughs> but his it, rest area yeah, is, yeah, and is and his, and his, his photograph is outside the men's room um, <laughs> there. But um, it's, it's... great tribute. Yeah, I know. I think so, too. <laughs> but uh, this the author said he thought it had to do with townships, you know, that we had so many townships. But anyway, Pinsky said that, yeah, you know, there's this... For a certain kind of poet... Um, a certain slant of light on an asbestos shingle or, you know, a graffiti uh, scribbled bridge piling is an ecstatic, is an ecstasy. And I think there is that kind of Jersey beauty that um, is, you know, not only found in the truly beautiful parts of the state, because there are, they exist, but um, yes. also in in uh, Elizabeth, where I was born, <laughs> places like that. So, 
I'm so glad. I also I have a fondness for New Jersey, yeah. so I'm glad. Thank you for representing. <laughs> yeah, thank them. you. I'm just... And and you've kind of you've also Virginia has become a. a a place that defines you because that's you went to undergrad there Lisa I did. and then and then graduate school and, and then and, and then I, yeah I did go away for 10 years after I got my MFA and taught at other two other universities uh, one of them in Texas and uh, but then I came we were fortunate enough to come back and and I but sometimes when I walk around I wonder you know is it 1974 or is it 2014 and where am I it's you know I'm sure Ann Arbor has seen similar changes in those in the in that time period. We'll take a short break okay. and then we'll come back. Today on Living Writers, Lisa Russ-Spar is here and you can go to the poetry reading tomorrow at UMA at the Helmut Stern Auditorium, 5, 10 p.m. So that's Thursday, October 23rd for a poetry reading. Lisa Russ-Spar. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back um, from that autumnal moment mm-hmm. um, to Living Writers today. Lisa Russpar is here. Um, Lisa, thanks again. Oh, for, no, thank you. And thank uh, you for both of you for curating this beautiful music. I mean, it's one, it's amazing to hear it. Now I know why all the young people were running around with things, you know, headphones. With their ears plugged. <laughs> because there's something about hearing it like right in your head like that that's just so... Amazing. So immediate, yeah. literally. <laughs> I just don't see very well or, or whatever. I'm so afraid that if I really plugged in, I, I would miss, you know, the cyclist coming around to the left or something like that. But uh, but at home, I think I'm yes. going to re- rethink how I start listening to That's That was beautiful. Oh, yeah. a, a, a changed moment. Yeah, that's what I had from the epiphany. Yeah. Um, well, well, Lisa, we, let's talk a moment about um, your work uh, we mentioned it with the Chronicle of Higher Education, where you're, you've created, like you've had a, a, a series. Yeah, I did. I should say that I'm not, um, that it ran for two years. And um, then... That's uh, a long time. It to, is a long time. Yeah. I was writing a po- about a poem every week. So it was really an, 
great experience for me. And the, um, the way it worked was I, I mean, I just, I know a lot of poets because I've directed the creative writing program at the University of Virginia for 11 years and I taught there for 20. And I've just, anyway, so I would just, I would, had this wonderful poem to write about it. It was sort of like I'd have two hours a week to write about it. So it became kind of a, medi- in a, a spiritual exercise really to kind of do to see what I could say about a poem in this time I had to say it. And uh, Ravi Shankar, my former undergraduate student, wonderful poet who's now a professor himself and the author of several books and editor of several books, was was so – he said, you know, the, the highest compliment he paid – he said, you know, I had sent him a link to um, one of the uh, weekly columns and he said, this is like looking forward to the uh, – Next episode of Twin Peaks. <laughs> I was like, okay, um, oh, that's I know. high praise. It, it is. It is. And so then, when when just as by coincidence, by the time the Chronicle was shutting down, it had about forty blogs, and it just decided to to not uh, feature them weekly anymore. Ravi approached me about collecting some of them for this book. So I'm really grateful to him for that and for many things. And um, I just had you know people are using it in their classrooms and um it's i it it's good for book clubs because you just i think poetry scares people frightens a lot of people and um that's sort of your introduction it is yeah. what you're how yeah. you you talk about your dad mm-hmm. yeah he's a he was a chemist at Merck and really really smart man but i mean oh and go blue oh yeah i was go blue by the way yes university of michigan graduate as is your mom well she 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 left uh, after two years to marry. Okay, but my, they met here. They met here. And uh, my mother was born in Detroit and raised there, so she, she's a Michigan girl. But um, anyhow, um, uh, I lost my train of thought. We were talking well, about... Well, the um, the, coll- the collection, the pieces from here, your dad was... He oh, yes, in yeah, the intro Because yeah. he's sort of saying, mm, yeah, poems. He just, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And he, you know, and like a lot of people, I think he thinks, uh, rather than... The poems being the best words in their best order, scholars say that they're out to trick me, and um, they're deliberately. And so, that with that in mind, um, the Chronicle editors, when they approached me about doing the the feature, they said, you know, we, you're going to reach a smart audience, but they're not necessarily going to be readers of poems. And so, that was my kind of my charge to so educators, yeah, or yeah. just yeah, just people who are interested in life and. You know, but maybe maybe don't know much about poetry, and I think even some of my colleagues, you know, and uh, are afraid of poetry. And I know that they, they, I have, you know, who they don't teach poems in their classes and things. I think, again, it's that the difficulty that poems sometimes present to um, to readers that um, we really want the reader to become engaged, and the reader has to work at it. You know, and I mentioned earlier that Hopkins is a favorite poet of mine, yes, and um, he. You know, he was friends with Robert Bridges, who was very accessible, patriotic poet laureate of, of England and wrote a poem that people really, you know, liked. And his poems were very accessible. Hopkins, not so much. And so Bridges, in response to a, a letter that Hopkins sends him with a poem and it, writes back something like, you know, could you just try to be a little bit more plain spoken or, you know, accessible? And then Hopkins writes back something like, well, <laughs> obscurity I can and will try to avoid as long as it's not consistent with ease at a first reading. And you can just you know, hear the convolution in his, in what he says, you know, and that, um, and not, you know, I mean, some caveat too. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, but anyway, so that was, um, and I've taught for many years since 1980. 
Uh, I've been teaching undergrads. And you can't be afraid to teach poems, no. can you, Lisa? I you can't. don't have that luxury. <laughs> no. You can't get away no, I can't. from what you've been charged with. Not at all. So, But it was really fun, though, to, to, to have a chance to kind of take some of the things that I've thought about with my students and, and put them into those essays. So that was very rewarding for me. And then, and uh, yeah, it's a good bathroom book. You know, you can read a poem or two in a very brief period and <laughs> move on. How, how did you um, decide to pick some of the poems? Because I know you said you had like a... Yeah, like I mean, I just, I wrote to of... people that whose work I admired and said, you know, can you send me a poem? And we didn't have money to pay per, for permission, so it had to be new work. But that was exciting, too. Um, so with maybe two or three exceptions over those two years, every poem that we published was had not been published before. And um, so I got to write about something that hadn't appeared in a book yet. First, or anything. Yeah. even, yeah. really. Yeah. Oh, what, it, what do you have one that you want to tell us about in particular oh, as an example? Yeah, oh. sure. You mean a poem by someone else? Yeah, let me see. Um, yeah, there which, are so, which I know I'm putting you on the spot no, here, no. actually. With the, it's good. Um, there are so many wonderful poems in here. Um, Let's see. Um, and you break it up into sections. Too. Right. And that was really fun to do as well because, um, you know, it helped me organize. That's the trick for me of, with anthologizing is I have to think of how to organize. Once I figure out how I'm going to curate the poems so that people can hear them, uh, then I'm, I feel like I'm all set. I think I'll read. This is by a young woman who was a UVA student um, also. Her name is Kiki Petrosino, and she's got two books of poems out with Sarah Band, and she teaches at the University of Kentucky. And this is sort of a timely poem, although maybe Michigan's past ragweed season, but it's very <laughs> well, much it's about still um, dragging on a bit. <laughs> yeah, so it's but it's about someone who has a real who's struggling to breathe because of a of of, of ragweed. Oh, great, <laughs> Kiki, ragweed by Kiki Petrosino. Neither wax nor egg nor honey on the knife. In garden not, nor street, nor bus, nor bank, not sleep, not word, nor will over will, not lung, not hull or sail, just crank and tread in place, no place, and white, not white, gets hot and seethe and seethe, my sleep like steam, not long, but less, so less, till I am I who cracks at last, begs air, and says, am I such root, such rot, for rage, who scrapes, who darks each swatch of flesh, each branch of mesh and salt and bit? This rag, it rob and sneak and rob and sneak. My tongue gets pins and pine and less and less. Can run, but run gets gone. Can bellow, bellow change. Only most, only half. And less and less get here, get thick and stick. Not breath. For this, know, which, for this one, Lisa, was what, how did, because the poem comes after your intro of it, right? Well, like the, the, the people send me poems, then I write, I write about it. But, but what did you say? What was it that you said about this one? Was it something about the rhythm or was oh, it? Well, for the, one thing, it's interesting that we were just talking about Hopkins because, you know, you can see the Hopkins all over this poem in the hierarchies of sound and the way that one word suggests the next. And it's a sonnet, you know, I'm not sure how clear that is was uh, in the reading, but Kiki is really, really uh, strong with the sonnet form. And so, you know, I started off by talking about what it's like to feel 
you know, powerless in the face of natural disasters. Then I talk about the sonnet form and its series of negations. Mm. I, I mean, here, I'll just read one little paragraph. Kiki Petrosino's Ragweed, a loose sonnet, opens with a series of negations. Nothing the speaker suggests, no remedy, no rest, no word, no place, no act of self-overwill, will-overwill, can protect the body under siege by its own immune system. The afflicted human has no choice but to crank and tread in place, no place, and white, not white, gets hot and seethe and seethe. Eerily, even the descriptors place and white are immediately negated, as with ruthless and punishing force the allergens mount their attack, invading and robbing even sleep, until the speaker, in lines within which truncated abrupt phrases and chazoric mimic the contraction of her breathing, her cries, I am I, who cracks at last, begs air and says, am I such root, such rot, for rage who scrapes? who darks each swatch of flesh, each branch of mesh and salt and bit. And so uh, talk about her rag rage. And, um, but, you know, breath, um, spirit and breath and all that, that's just behind all poetry. You know, um, I, I think um, it might have been David Baker in his wonderful book about the lyric poem said that um, crying and laughing are the two um, uniquely human pre-verbal no- musics or noises that we that are behind all poems. And I think that's true. I mean, um, we might it might look like our dogs are weeping, but they're not really weeping. You know, hyenas might seem to laugh, but they're not really laughing. They, animals do mourn, I think. Um, but those sounds that humans make, um, weeping and laughing, are sort of behind, I think, most poetry. And I think Kiki's poem is, confronts that, like, you know, who am I if I don't have my, if I can't breathe, you know. Yes, not an easy thing to, yeah. yeah. I've, I've tried to write an asthma poem. Or, well, that sounds really charming, but <laughs> yeah. anyway. There's a whole host stay of... stay tuned, folks. Yeah, right. <laughs> Bodily disorders. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except you need to add another word if that's going to be the title. Yeah, I know. Lisa, I know. I know. That's right. <laughs> I know. The insomnia poems, after I brought out Acquainted with the Night, it's just, you know, a book of poems about insomnia one of my just that yeah, I, mean, yeah, I would I like to see that book too <laughs> yeah it was, it's a it's a wonderful beautiful book that columbia university press brought out but anyway one of my colleagues said well maybe what's next you know migraines uh, menopause you know <laughs> what other um human ailments are you going to well, I anthologize think, well i think well, hardy har har but i i think <laughs> yeah, therapy <I> poems th- <laughs> but i think it was really brave of you to because if do you suffer from insomnia i do because, yeah because sometimes to talk about it feels like it They'll bring it closer. I know. I really worried about that. And uh, actually, I ironically, I slept pretty well when I was working on that on that book. And um, it also one of the reasons I like to anthologize or edit edit an anthology, you know, while I'm writing my own poems, is that sometimes the poems, like the when I was working on the insomnia anthology, I did a lot of research um, about you know who the famous insomniacs were and literature. And then I got then I was also working on this book, Blue Venus, and I, uh, the spine of this book is a series of poems about the insomnias of different people. Um, some of them are like Thomas Merton and Thomas Edison and whatever are real people. And then um, the biblical Adam is in here. And, you know, there's just imagining the insomnia. Oh, that's of, really great. Uh, yeah. You gave insomnia to Adam. Yeah, well, I know. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. take a short break okay. and then we'll be back. Today on the program, Lisa Raspar is here on Living Writers. Tomorrow, Lisa Raspar will be giving a poetry reading at UMA, 5, 10 p.m. 
We'll take a short break and be right back. I'm T. Hutzel, and that was Lisa Ruspar just humming in oh, yes. came back on. <laughs> well, it's hard not to. I the, know. The, the, um, yeah. To Joni Mitchell. Right, right? absolutely. The radio. Yeah, of course. Radio song. Um, that was great. And Well, thanks so much for being here today, Lisa. And well, thank you. You know, I got to roll into town myself to um, in one of the, it's a, was it an amazing blue taxi or a... Oh, magnificent yes. blue taxi. And I think it is amazing. Uh, yeah, no, it was really quite wonderful. And uh, like I said, you know, both of my parents went here, and uh, and I had and you've never, not been. I've never been here before, so it really was wonderful to just sort of like ride into town. And I've had this Ann Arbor of the mind, you know, in, for a long time as I imagined it. And I've I've had many beloved beloved students come up here and go to school here after working with me, and I feel like I've got this idea of what the town is, but it's really wonderful to have a lot of it confirmed by these huge oak trees and beautiful, big old Victorian houses with pumpkins everywhere. And it's like, it's really wonderful. Yeah. And, and autumn is a great time yeah. to come. Yeah. And, and say, yeah. Well, well, glad you're here. Thank you. And and everyone can go and, and you can go to the Helmut Stern Auditorium tomorrow um, for a reading. You're mm-hmm. going to be reading poems from all all the books? I'm thinking Listen. about it, yeah. Like I said, you know, I, I usually read just from, if I have a new book, right. right. But since I'm thinking about this this other, the new inside, I might, I, I'm yet to be determined, but I'm thinking of trying to curate a reading that draws from the different from different books and see how they might speak to each other across books and some of the poems and things like that. So, so, yeah. so everyone. And some new work also. I brought along some new poems. So. Did you bring a new poem for today? Would you mind um, reading? Yeah, let me Did see. I mean, I, I, I haven't quite figured out yet what I'm going to read tomorrow. but um, And maybe a living writer's debut then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Let's see. I There's a whole sheaf of poems, everyone, yeah, just so right. you know. There's not just mm-hmm. a few new ones. Um, let's see. So one... Um, one thing I'm uh, I'm working on, I like to work in series on poems, and I think that started for me when um, my kids were little and I didn't have time to write very often. So if I was working on a series of insomnia poems or poems about Lent or poems about fairy tales or something, then I always always have this room to go back into. Um, and, uh, and it was always waiting for me. And, oh, I love that image. Yeah, so, um, so I have, I'm working now on a, a couple of different series. One is a series of poems with the title Temple, T-E-M-P-L-E. Just, I love the idea of a temple as a place to worship, but also as a part of the skull. And it's also cognate with the word tome and tomb. So there's a lot of rich poetry stuff in there. Um, and maybe I'll... Yeah, Maybe I'll read this one. I, um, because we were talking about the dictionary earlier, and... Um, so I not only do I read the dictionary a lot, but I I pick you know I flowers and things and then press, <clears throat> talk, them. press them later and find them later and I always like it when I'm reading an old book from the library or something and I find something like that. Uh, recently, I was reading Thomas Jefferson's poetry scrapbooks and found an oak leaf that someone else had pressed. No, that he had put in there. So no, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Wait, it was his. Yeah, he was the one that had pressed. Yeah, the yeah, leaf. he had made this. He had the you know. I mean, we think he did. I mean, it's. I did. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, who knows really? But um, the scrapbooks were descended through the family, so it's possible that like one of his family members might have been reading the scrapbooks and then put the oak leaf in there. And I don't think it's been dated, but it was still pretty wonderful to find it there. It was still red. The way Dickinson's hair in the Amherst archive is still red. Um, oh. um, anyway, so this is called Temple Dictionary. And it's about trying to look up the word tresor, T-R-E-S-O-R, and uh, and then f- while searching through the dictionary, finding a um, a violet that I'd forgotten that I'd tucked in there. Temple Dictionary. Seeking tresor from the Greek thesaurus, store, treasure house, I find this filament stem and Venus stain, Last spring's violet, gentian lapels held in tiny kamasutric kimono foldings, obesant, blurring to the word thesis, a setting down, down. Forgive me, O oh, once alive. I believed to press love would be to make love. See, you are here again, bruised flesh, I will learn to consume. Can a word have soul? How move from one to another without dying? <laughs> wow, that's a powerful use of a question there. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one of the things that I'm teaching a course right now at UVA with a group of really wonderful students on the poetics of ecstasy. And one of the things you know we talk about is how ecstasy is a, in poetry is a principle of motion or arrival so that, you know, you, you were your ecstasis, you know, you're beside the self. And one of the things we talk about is that even um, moving from one word to the, to the next, you're already a different person than you were than, than you, when you read the word that, you know, you, that, that just sort of passes through your consciousness. So that we're, that reading is an ecstatic act as well as writing. So 
Anyway, I, I know you just um, Lisa just shrugged then. So I, I, just so you know, it's interesting. Like these are the conversations, like poets, like looking this closely yeah. at the word to just think that once you have the word, the next and you're at the next word, you're a different self with that word. Right. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, <laughs> poets, linguists. Maybe. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And then, and you know, Anne Carson has a wonderful book called um, Eros the Bittersweet, which yes. you know is just her. her um, her notion of triangulation, you know, for as a principle for arrows, so that there's there's the the lover and the beloved and whatever impedes them, or the poet and the reader and the text, or you know, there's banging the table. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> now you know you've really no, been a living writer. That's right. I'm I'm a living writer. Um, but anyway, um, I is really I think a, a great kind of um, figure for for ecstasy that you know that. Um, to keep the current alive, you know, you have to keep it flowing. And, and I think that's what, what poems allow you to do is that you feel something and then you get to give it an edge and a shape in a poem. And then you get to move from word to word and that keeps the feeling, makes an, an experience, you know, as well as just a, you know, an, a recording or a you know, an account or something like that. Because it is it's something about the urgency. I think what so, yeah. The, what the poem, the mm-hmm. poem experience is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as one of my students said, you know, sometimes, you know, well, actually, it's Paul Valeray, this the poet, the French poet said, you know, it, it's one thing for a, for a poet to have an ecstatic experience, you know. Woo. But, right. but, but, but the poet's job is to create an ecstatic experience for the reader, you know, and that how do you do that? And so it's not just the story. Right. So one of my students said, well, you know, Kublai Khan, you know, isn't it's I mean, it was written in an opium trance, but it isn't really particularly necessarily as ecstatic as maybe uh, a poem by Emily Dickinson, you know, Uh there's something like that. So. And you mentioned Emily Dickinson, mm-hmm. and just before we went into the, this poem, yeah, and about and at the Amherst College, there is there her hair. Yeah, I, did, well, I, I didn't um, actually Higginson. I think it's Higginson. Her editor takes yeah. you know a clipping of her hair when oh, I uh, when she that. dies. Um, I think she's fifty six, fifty seven, and uh, and so uh, and then now her. Many of her things are in the museum, in the house. You know, they're still kept there. And the Amherst College, a lot of the work is there, yes. the ephemera. And then Harvard has some of it as well. So, But there's a lock of hair. Yeah, there's a lock of her hair. You can go see it. Pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm like dumbfounded. Now yeah, let's move on yeah, from this. You must go to Amherst. Uh, well, well, I, I have been there. I oh, went yeah. with with the New England Literature Program oh, here. Yeah. A group of students. We went and uh, we we met up with the poet Ish Klein mm-hmm. and actually had a picnic with Emily. Oh, um, nice. You know, yeah. The grave. Of course, she was there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, and called back. <laughs> And, but I didn't see the lock of hair yeah. at the house. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it must it's not be. The house. A, it must be. A, yeah, you have to go into the archive at the museum at the Amherst College. But um, isn't it strange though to think? So we have these artifacts. Mm-hmm. Just sort of um, was looking and thinking about King Tut the other day, and just I don't know. The, but we have them for poet poets too. Like when yeah. you said the lock of hair, I was like, oh, oh, I know. Well, I saw um, uh, Charlotte Bronte's gloves at the Pierpont Morgan Library in in an exhibit of some of her ephemera. And um, it, it was a startling. I mean, they're, they're, I don't know, the width of a, a very, very small pencil case. I mean, I don't know. Just to, to see how, we knew that tiny. she was tiny, but yeah, very tiny. The gloves prove it. Yeah, they do. do, do this is a weird question, mm-hmm. Lisa. So mm-hmm. um, do you, what do you think your ephemera 
Oh. It will, <laughs> well, be. it could be these long white hairs that I find all over my car. <laughs> I'm like, whose hair is that? Um, Lisa's very blonde. Mm, yeah. yeah well, or white or whatever. Um, I don't know. I really don't. You know, I, I think about this sometimes in relation to, because I love manuscripts. You know, I like going into Dickinson's, you know, trove and looking at her variants and the things that she crossed out of the things she chose not to cross out and heaped up. So you've um, gone to the archives. I've seen research. some of it, you know, and a lot of it I've seen thanks to the good work of the uh, Emily Dickinson lexicon and, and people like Martha Nell Smith and, you know, people who are archiving her material and I got to see it online. But um, and the wonderful Marta Werner, Ann Carson, gorgeous nothings book, you know, with all, all of her envelope poems and things that she was writing on those scraps of paper. It's just such a gift to have that. New, that New Directions book, and all of her, the, the good work of the, all those people. But, um, but you know, so, but now my students, like when they turn in poems to me, I, I'm not, I don't think they're keeping, you know, their manuscripts. I think they're working kind of online. And so, I, just, I mean, it's just going to change things. It's going to change how, you know, what, what kind of stuff descends to us for poets who are working mostly in, in, cyber, in digital realms and... Um, I have a colleague at Virginia who uh, was just wandering around down in the stacks of our library and found an old book of poems by, um, oh, um, just spacing now on the guy who wrote the Hiawatha Longfellow. And um, what he found was this correspond, this like conversation between a woman and her husband as they wrote to each other about the poems. And if that book goes to Google Docs, you know, that's not all that textual notation will be lost in the layering of that. So, you know, I don't want to sound... Like a Luddite, because I'm not, but I just, anyway, I'm just, I'm fascinated by things, the, 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 the manuscripts themselves, the, the locks of hair. The artifacts. Yeah, the gloves, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Lisa, thanks so much oh, for talking with thank me. Thank you. Today. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, there, you're welcome back. And to any, roll into town with time. the radio, <laughs> yes. for the radio show. <laughs> and many thanks to both of you. Okay. And, and today, Lisa Rustbar is here. And remember, everyone, Lisa will be reading tomorrow um, at UMA, 5, 10 p.m. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. You've been listening to Living Writers. Until next time.
Hello out there. Today is Wednesday, and you are listening to the Daily Sports Report. Uh, Wednesday is normally Andrew Hausman's Full House segment, but today you have a special host, a former MCSP alum as well, uh, Zach Shaw. And on the other side of the glass, we have the usual Full House crew, Jeremy Parks, Dan Disler, and remind me of 